Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
City Limits on 3CR. And we've got Kevin in the studio, and we've got yeah. Andy on the controls, and, and I'm while Mark. you're doing that, I'll pour the tea over here. Excellent. Um, we've got a lovely cup of tea going. Andy's doing it. Oh, well done, Andy. Beautiful job. Beautiful job. So that song was a song called Antarctica by Syrian <laughs> Rue, and um, I thought it would be a very apt way to start the show today, because there's some pretty worrying news coming out of the polar regions at the moment, and we'll... Start by talking a bit about that, shall we, Kevin? Should we shall? Let's just say what's on the program, though, as well as that. We should. You're going to read a poem of some sort. At some too, stage, you? if very there's time. Good. Well, well, very good. Um, and, uh, well, on the program, we're going to have um, Mike Kayafa, who's a uh, storekeeper at Vic Market. He's going to tell us why the people there oppose the redevelopment of the market. He was involved in the, uh, in the Phil Cleary campaign in the recent uh, council election, which... Uh, its main policy, I think, was to oppose the development and have some sort of balance, but you know, just development that doesn't change it too much. So, well, I'm going to talk to Mike about why the traders are, you know, not too happy about it, obviously. And the second half, we're going to talk to one of our regular irregulars, John Passant, the former tax commissioner um, or assistant, and uh, we're going to talk specifically about because the in the last week or so they've talked about Australia being threatened to lose its AAA rating and how terrible this would be. And the ratings agencies, Moody, Standard and Poor's the main two, but there's a few others. But how did they get to be in this position? Who are they in the first place? Who are Standard mm. and Poor's? Who are um, Moody's? Christ. How did they get there? How did they get to be the whole world takes what they say, yeah. et cetera, et cetera? And are they audited themselves? All those exactly. sort of issues. So John's going to explain all that to us today. That should be a good show. Yep. Okay. Now back to, uh, oh, the, yes. Arctic. Back yeah. to the cold. Back the, to not the, so cold. cold. Not, as, not yes. as cold as it was, yeah. Yeah, so there's the news that's coming out of the um, polar regions at the moment is that we have a, a worrying degree of warming. And I was reading yesterday that we also have a case where the looks like the Antarctic ice shelf is starting to crack. And um, the consensus is that it's most likely uh, warming oceans that's causing this. And that in we could look at something like within the next century, um, the, the sea level rising by 10 feet. But they're actually saying it could happen a lot sooner than that. This is accelerating at a much faster pace than even the most pessimistic models have been showing. And actually, to be fair as well, in fact, sea level rise is one of our least worries when you look at the, the methane that's locked up down there that could be released as well, which could add Add to the problem. Yeah, well, Greenland methane, of course, the um, it's already happening up yeah. here very strongly, and methane is a yeah. very nasty gas. Um, it is a very nasty gas in yeah. terms of these things. In fact, a woman called um, Jennifer Francis, she's a climate scientist at uh, Rutgers University. She she says the near record fall, and this is in the Arctic where they're finding temperatures now are are nearly twenty degrees higher than normal for this time of year. Yes. Um, which is which is frightening. Very they're, frightening. They're, they're currently I mean they're minus five but they're normally minus twenty five. And she said a near record fall in the extent of sea ice in the Arctic this summer had led to a warmer autumn. This had reduced the temperature difference between the Arctic and more southerly regions, causing a wavier jet stream, a great river of fast moving air about 10 kilometres above the Earth that acts as a barrier separating the North Pole from warmer latitudes. The changes in the jet stream had allowed more warm air to penetrate further north, which explained a lot of the ridiculously high, that's her term, ridiculously high Arctic temperatures. This is scary because it is showing 
us how rapidly the climate system is changing. We expected for a long time to see the ice disappear and the Arctic warm up and perhaps the jet stream doing bizarre things, but it's happening much faster than I think anyone expected, etc. So that's, mm. you know, it's pretty frightening. Yes, there's a petition going around on the internet to um, demand that a climate emergency is declared. I think Christine Milne, is uh, the ex-Greens leader, is, is spearheading that campaign. So certainly um, I recommend you Google that and see if you can find, uh, find that petition and sign it. But of course we have to do a lot more than signing petitions. We, we have to really start... Uh, getting down to the serious business of how we're going to deal with this crisis. Well, exactly. I mean, we've got a US president who says it's a Chinese plot. Yes. And a one-nation senator who says it's a United Nations commie plot. Yes, it's not... Uh, got some bright minds in this world. Yeah, quite. It's a bit of a worry, to say the least, <laughs> yes. isn't it? Um, it's really hard to know what to say. I'm trying to think of something positive and cheerful to say in response to that, but I can't at the moment. No, I'll come right, back okay. to you on that one. Okay. <laughs> and if you get something cheery, do let us know. I this, will. This is City Limits. Don't say it on air. <laughs> uh, be very careful. Very careful. This is your last program for the year, don't forget. You're, it is. It's my last program for off, the year. It Mark's is. off now till February. He's uh, heading off to New South Wales to do a bit of work. Work. Bit of work, yes. Oh, my God. I know. It's a scary yes. well, I do work here. But it's a different kind of work, so yeah. Yeah. Now there's been a there's been a push to um, to get rid of sugar in um, in sugary drinks, etc., uh, or at least have a tax on them and try and therefore force them out or be used a lot less. And it would raise a hell of a lot of money for a start for the for the government anyway. Um, and there's a bloke on the radio this morning on ABC talking about it on Radio National. Uh, and that Australia is way behind the rest of the world. He was talking about salt specifically, but he got mm. onto sugar as well. Um, but then you'll be pleased to know that giant mind. Speaking of giant minds, Barnacle Barnaby Joyce. Oh yes. Um, Barney, Barnacle said, Barnacle said, fat Aussies should stop eating so much and do a bit of exercise. Now, here's a he's a prime example of a man who's obviously yes. stopped eating and doing a lot of exercise. Yes. Um, and um, he says that uh, he's left. He led the opposition to the, to the tax yesterday, ruling out support because it was bonkers mad. It's not the job of the tax office to promote healthy lifestyles. People should eat less and exercise more. And on he went. And if you take that logically, therefore, we should cut out all taxes on cigarettes. Well, quite, we? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's right. And yeah. then that's half their budget gone, really, then, isn't well, it? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Add, add gambling to it, they'd be in real trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's a yeah. bit of a worry when part of our economy is propped up by people doing unhealthy things. But that's the irony of GDP, folks. Yep. Uh and um, we, there's a notice in our box. <laughs> we're a bit low in this program. We normally check the box after the show and find there's things we're supposed to have read. So we, I went and actually checked it this morning, amazingly. Oh, well done. Um, just, I know there's a cart promoting this, but um, I'm pretty sure there is. I've heard a Global Street Party. This is on Saturday week, uh, rallying at the State Library at 12 and, and followed by... Um, um, a whole day of fun and things at the Trades Hall, um, in, in outside the Trades Hall, obviously in Ligon Street. And it's a family-friendly event to celebrate our diverse community. So it's um, all sorts of things, cultural exhibitions, um, racial justice forums, and there's sorts of family stuff. And it's at 12 o'clock, the stuff at there, or 12 o'clock at the State Library, and then march down and wander down to the Trades Hall about one. And it's a street party, uh, free street party, which should be good fun, actually. It sounds good to me. Yep. So I thought we'd give that a little plug. Ah, um, on just on, on such matters also, as we were talking about earlier, the environment, uh, people who have listened to um, or listen regularly to Democracy Now!, which is an excellent program, I would recommend if mm. people don't, at nine o'clock on, um, 
Monday mornings on this station coming out of America. But they've been giving a lot of publicity and not the, the commercial media, I think, there and here have been giving very little. There's been a bit on SBS News um, at night just showing people being sprayed and things, but no real analysis of what's really going on. This North Dakota oil pipeline mm. situation, which is getting a lot of coverage on that program, the whole program this Monday was devoted to it. And the bloke who runs the company, a bloke called Kelsey Warren, um, charmer of no doubt, he runs some sort of music festival, and a lot of um, a lot of key musicians who didn't realise he was so involved until recently have now pulled out of his music festival as well, which is a good sign. Mm. Speaking of which, Leonard Cohen, people mightn't re- realise because there's been a lot of eulogies about him. Did yes. I mention last week? But Leonard Cohen did. Uh, did break a boycott by artists not to play in Israel. And he did. And played there some years he ago. He did, yeah. And he also, in fact, performed for the Israeli troops during one of the early wars many years ago. He did. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's true. Uh, anyway, just, just thought I'd mention that in passing. But anyway, on that, um, we know what's happening there with the, uh, the pipe. Well, the pipeline is being built through this, the, the, um, the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, and there's other tribes involved, uh, and they're being treated with absolute contempt. It's their land, but they're being... As people have seen, they're being sprayed with capsicum. They're being, they're being, dogs have been turned on them. Uh, they've been sprayed with water, uh, arrested and, and injured on their own land, and all sorts of tricks are being played by the state. Uh, and of course, with Trump there now, there's no way they're going to get. And the company says it's got to go through there. But you'll be pleased to know, he said he's quite happy to sit down and talk with the Standing Sioux people, Standing Rock Sioux people, but. Uh, it just has to go through there. There's no alternative. So, <laughs> so when he says yeah. talk to them, you're just going to tell them that yeah, they're wrong yeah. and so it's going to happen anyway. Sounds like he's open to all sorts of compromise other than changing anything. Exactly. Yeah. The man of the one-way conversation. Yeah, that's right. Mm. That's right. And on um, before we go to our first guest, uh, speaking of uh, of laws and, and, and wonderful people and the rights of people, this is a, another one of these classic cases from the United Arab Emirates um, Saudi and all those places where women are treated so well. A British woman, a British uh, woman, uh, was arrested in Dubai because she reported her own rape by two British men, uh, and she was charged with. Well, she was arrested for reporting the rape, but the charge was having extramarital sex, um, which one would have thought she didn't actually have much say about uh, in the circumstances, but you'll be pleased to know that showing how sensible they are, they've actually now dropped the charges against her, which could have led to imprisonment and flogging for um, being raped. Uh, it's a great system, isn't it? What a system, eh? What a great system. system. Great system. And just thought I'd um, finish up this section with a, a full-page ad turned up in the Financial Review last Thursday... Um, you'll be pleased with this, Mark. Um, oh, yes. oh, and, and even you'll be pleased with it, Andy, I think. Reimagine urban life. Look at that. Isn't it beautiful? It looks lovely. Lovely, lovely, lovely. And it's um, Murbeck is an integrated urban property group and a key contributor to Australia's major cities. Well, mm. it certainly contributes. It certainly does. Our purpose to re and it, this is in capitals, it's now obviously going to be the phrase probably R U F, rough 
RUL. No, RUL, isn't it? R-U-L. Reimagine Urban Life, all in capitals. Helps to guide us not only in what we do and how we do it, but importantly, why we do it. Well, we know why they do it. They want to make money. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's pretty simple. I didn't think I needed to say it. We're inspired to think about how we can redefine the landscape. Well, I could leave it alone. Well, we could keep it defined as it is. Keep yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Keep or it. just, just allow right. it to, to yes. alter naturally as just people... Just define, as you say, and take the re out. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and create more sustainable. Well, it's pretty sustainable if they leave it alone. Well, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I reckon be- there's fewer cars carbon emissions and leaving it alone than redefining yeah, it. was before they got to it anyway, with other ones around it. Yeah. Connected and vibrant urban environments for our customers, leaving a lasting legacy for generations to come. What a wonderful company. I just think... Um you should. Everyone should do a degree yeah. in marketing because yes. if, you, if you're a good marketer, <laughs> you can sell any old crap, can't you? Mm. Well, there's another one I've mentioned several times in this program, the one um, Pete, P-E-E-T, uh, the son of one of the White Shoe Brigade of the old Belky Peterson Hins um, oh, yes. developers up there in Queensland is now head of that company, but their slogan is bringing land to life. So you know, so, so the, the, clearly, until you build on the land, you alive. go out, go out to open spaces yeah. and build on it. It's not living. It's not living. No, no. absolutely not. On the line, we've got Mike Kaafa, who's a trader at Big Market. He's in the Delhi section, and um, I, I picked up Mike because I, I saw I saw someone standing next to Phil Cleary when he announced on the telly, when he announced his um, standing for Melbourne Council the other week. And I thought, I know that bloke from somewhere I couldn't place it. And I was trying to think, where have I known him from? And over the weekend, I suddenly thought, ah, of course, he he runs that stall. So, Mike, um, here we are, and you were part of that campaign which which opposed the massive development that the Lord Mayor's chasing for. What is, let's just sum it up, what is actually the Lord Mayor saying should happen at Vic Market? Uh, Good morning, how are you? All right, mate, yeah. Um, well, it's in an interesting phase at the moment. Implementation phase has been complete and there's been recommendations uh, to the city that we uh, go ahead with the master plan. But what is the master plan? Um, it's still up in the air what the actual master plan is, guys. Um, we know the excavating ABCD shed is... In in process and moving traders into a pavilion to Queen Street in that time bit. Right, and and of course, so you know, I, as a regular at the market, I think, and I'm sure most people who go there think the ambience of the place is part of its attraction, mm. apart from the goods and things you can yeah. get there. Uh, and we're all afraid that's going to be lost in the process. Um, is that a is that a genuine fear? Of course, it's a genuine fear to everyone involved, even even the city and to Phil Cleary as well, and to all Melbournians. So, I think my job is to just voice my concerns on the sensitivity of the project and how we can uh, make the QVM renewal program the best for all Melbournians, Victorians. So yeah. I'm, I'm I'm pretty new to this. Is there so are there plans to build um, re- residential development there, or, or is that's it... on the Munro site? So yeah, yeah, there's, there's a tower proposed on the Munro site, which I don't, yeah, so that's adjacent to the dairy hall and the car park at the moment. Yes, and that won't be part of the QVM. I I believe I'm not too sure. So. Right, but yeah. that's where the current car park will go. 
And in many, it's already being surrounded anyway by high rise all over the place. The old Stork Hotel over the road getting a high rise up there and a yeah. massive high rise. And this one, I mean, in many ways, the high rises around it are, 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 are again crowding out the market in some ways, aren't they? Yeah, they are. But our concern is the actual seven hectares on the actual market site. Sure. So what goes on the boundaries across the road, apart, like away from the market, you know, we, we can't really of course. hold that of course. too much. It's up to the planning minister and the city planners. But I imagine mm. there are some heritage overlays on the market site. Surely that should uh, make a difference in terms of the Yeah, outcome. and I think it's it's been um, in the hands of the minister right. of late and it's their final decision. Yes, and also because there's the original old cemetery there as well, which um, surely has to have some impact on it. Uh, yes, that's over the current car park where they yeah. want the supposed park land. So, yeah, there's a lot of sensitivity across the whole seven hectares. Right. Mike, if um, if the Lord Mayor gets his way, and he has got a majority on council so he can really do what he likes in many ways, um, will we see real changes to the layout, to the deli section, to the meat and veg and, and fish section, to the to the vegetable section at the other end. Um, will, will we see real changes there that are going to change the whole nature of the place? Not to my understanding. So I know the lower market, as they like to call it, will have a little facelift, but not too much will change. So what's your biggest concern about this development? What 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 worries you the most about how this could... Oh, just the disruption and the how and our continuing of trade after. That's I see. So this is an issue of, of disruption and how it could affect trade and, yeah, and all and of that. Yeah, and the security for traders after the five-year renewal. So. It's a long time, isn't it? Yes, and I don't think that's a... A city's um, decision, I think that's a management decision, so we yes. have to work with management as well after renewal, what happens to all traders. Mm. Of course. And if um, if it goes ahead as planned, will there be periods where it's, everything's going to be closed down or large sections closed down during um, work? And yeah, they're trying to make it so it is working as efficiently as it can during a, a construction process. And in the next coming weeks, I think, we'll all get an idea of how that will work, but nothing's finalised as yet. Mm. Mm. During the process of getting to this stage where the Lord Mayor's made announcements about redevelopment, was there any real meaningful consultation with the traders? Uh, I think it's it's been noted that the consultation period has been maybe flawed in, in the last two consultation periods, so, and I think the city's aware of that now and uh, really trying to engage with traders in the next phase. Mm. Mm. Well, that's what I'm, I believe will happen, and I'm pushing very strongly for that. Yeah. The, the non-Doyle councillors, what sort of support you're getting there? Um, it hasn't been discussed too much in the last three or four weeks because we're just trying to get our head around what is actually happening in the uh, town hall as new councillors. <laughs> There's a lot of information being put forward to us on various issues. So I think in the new year we'll all sit down and discuss it further. Mm. So really it's, it's I think, the point you raised earlier, up in the air. We're not talking about the high rise next door, but the whole thing's up in the air at the moment in many ways. Uh, yeah, and 
there's certain applications that have to be passed. Mm. So it can happen if it happens in this in in this way. But yeah, there's still a lot of conversation to go to the end of the project. And does Richard Wynn have a say? He talked about the um, the overlays, um, but does he <coughs> does he have some sort of final say in what can go on? I he's the planning I'm, minister, of course. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I believe that he has a final say. I'm not too sure. But, mm, yeah. Yes, but I'm under the under I'm under the understanding that he may. But they're still putting together the master plan. That's not official, yes. Is that right? Yeah, there's still a okay. retail strategy coming out, yeah. and yes, yeah. So, so they're still in that process, yeah, that like, consultation. I guess as a regular user of the market, and you as a regular um, or regular, very regular, uh, Mike, um, it, it is a worry to think that they might change it in a way that um, you know, because I just think it's it's lovely as it is. And, and we, you know, we're we're putting that case forward that the community have a vested interest in this. It is a people's market, and mm. everyone should be listened to, yeah. you know, traders and the community. So, and of course, we all know it's also a great tourist attraction in Melbourne. Well, number one tourist attraction in Melbourne. It is. Well, well, yeah. well that, that's pretty great. Didn't you? Will this have a gentrifying effect in the sense that costs, prices will go up, or it shouldn't affect um, your rents and that kind of thing? That hasn't been disclosed. Right. So, okay. Yeah. And, so there needs mm. to be a, definitely a good line of communication, I think, between uh, the people doing this and the traders, I think. Yeah, it sounds like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I presume, probably stating the obvious, I presume the majority of traders are concerned about this, aren't they? Uh, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of concern of where the future lays. That's that's probably the major concern of how, mm. how it's going to affect their business in the five, yeah. ten years, if they will survive or will they be wanted or, yeah. So it's really uncertainty at the moment. That's a big problem, isn't it? Yeah, the uncertainty. And I think in the next couple of months, the conversations that we're going to have will hopefully clear up a lot of those uncertainties. Yeah, yeah well, we're back in February next year mm. um, in this program, so we'll, we'll check it out then, because by the time you might have got somewhere, although with the Christmas break, it might just stagnate for a while too. I've um, been working hard over the yeah. Christmas break. <laughs> Good on you. Okay, right. okay, Mike, it's a great time for the market, of course, Christmas. I get there on Christmas Eve and battle my way through the crowds. Um, okay, look, Mike, thanks for your time this morning, and we'll keep in touch on it. Cheers, Thank Mike. Thank you very much, guys. Okay, I'll thanks a lot. Rightio. Mike Harper there, who's one of the traders at Vic Market. And, uh, yes, and there's pressure on Preston markets as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. I heard that. <clears> um, I, haven't, I don't know much of the detail of that. Do you well, know well I just had a quick look at a proposed development for the Preston markets that everyone's getting a bit worried about, and there seems to be quite a lot of high-rise, but that's actually within the boundaries of the actual market itself. Oh. So I don't know how that's going to work. Certainly, well, High-rise residential? Yes. Within the boundaries of the market? Yes, it looks like it. Okay. Yeah, now yeah. I may be wrong, but it certainly looks like that. But yeah. there's certainly major, major development planned for Preston mm. markets, and there's a lot of people who are very concerned about it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, I mean, a, yeah, it's just, it's, I don't know why Doyle's got this thing. I suppose it's like the state government with the uh, the metro rail thing that John says could be done much cheaper. Yes. But you've got to have the big project thing going all the time, haven't you? Well, that's right. It's, it's being seen to do something, isn't yeah, it? Big project mm. syndrome or something. It's big project syndrome, that's right. Yeah, all right. Look, we'll take a break and come back and we'll work out why we could lose our... I know you're losing sleep over it uh, night after night, Mark. They lose our AAA rating. And, yeah, I'm, no, Andy's, I'm hoping a decent Andy was saying last tonight. week he's been deeply disturbed by this. Yeah, be off yeah. the sleeping pills after, yeah. after tonight. That's good. Yeah, OK. After the break, we'll sort out what's going on. Okay, on the line we have John Passant. When we every time we get John on, we say he's an ex uh, 
an ex assistant commissioner of taxation, and he um, he we, we what he says on this program explains why he isn't anymore. Um, but John, thanks for coming on. We thought we'd talk about. Um, about credit ratings today because we've just been saying before we've all been losing sleep and tossing and turning and I know you're going to sound very tired because you haven't had much sleep worrying about this <laughs> that we're, we're going to lose our, our AAA rating but they're determined by people like Standard and Poor's and Moody's there's a few others but they're the two everyone seems to know um, just can you background to us where these people came from how they got to the positions they're in and how they can determine all these things on behalf of whole national economies that's a good question. Um, credit rating agencies basically have a long history of uh, about 1830s. I think they started with uh, with a, a crisis in the economy, and that's a common theme about credit agencies. Every time companies or countries go bust, people say, oh, I really needed to know that I shouldn't have invested in these countries or I shouldn't have lent to them or I shouldn't have lent to these companies or I shouldn't have bought shares in them. And so over time, uh, these agencies arose and they arose out of specific circumstances, which I won't go into. But uh, they became more and more important <coughs> as a consequence of things like the Depression, for example. So there are a whole range of different groups then who... Uh, who, who was, whose advice was thought after the event, of course, about uh, that there could be some system of regulating and understanding the risks that were involved in lending to major companies or lending to countries. And um, one of the key events was back in 1975 when the Securities and Exchange Commission in the US decided that it would license certain groups to give advice uh, on credit ratings about countries and about um, big companies. And so the end result was the first three that they approved were Standard & Poor's, Moody's and Pitches. And together they hold about 95% of all the credit agency market. And what they do is basically come along and, and put it in, in the context of you or me. We go along to a bank and we want a loan. And the bank says, oh, how much income do you earn? Uh, what are your assets? How stable is your job? Oh, yeah. And what's the asset you're going to purchase? If it's a home, for example, what's the value of that and is it likely to increase over time? And bingo, the end result is we'll give you a loan and we'll take half of it or quarter of your income to pay off that loan over 30 years. A bit different with major companies who might be around the whole of the globe, who have a whole range of different income streams, who are subject to a whole range of risks. And, of course, with national economies, um, the rating agencies have to do the same sort of in convoluted and uh, in involuted uh, process of examining what's actually going on with the country and whether its economy is OK, whether it will be OK into the future. And one of the things that we're seeing at the moment is um, Standard & Poor's has put out what's called, for the Australian economy, a negative rating or a negative outlook, which means... Um, I'll explain what what the what the things do, but maybe I should draw breath first. <laughs> um, these agencies breath, right. these agencies put out different ratings for countries, for example. So the top rating for a country under Standard and Poor's is triple A, which is what Australia's rating is. That is, it's a good borrower. It will repay on time. 
that there's no problems with its economy or that there are a few problems that are um, there are there might be a few problems but they're manageable. Now, in July, Standard and Poor's put out a note saying basically that Australia's rating, which is currently AAA, is under threat. Um, and what it did was put us on a what's called a negative outlook, which means that there's a chance of a downgrade from the highest rating, which is AAA, over the next two years. And the push there from, from Standard & Poor's was we've got to make more budget saving or increase revenue through taxes and so forth. And the other complication to all of this, of course, is since then we're finding out that wages increases are at their lowest level uh, in um, history or in many years anyway, mm. in decades, and that this means that revenue growth is very poor. So it's putting even more pressure on the government deficit and also government debt. And if that continues, then Standard & Poor's argument is we will downgrade from AAA to AA, for example, or AA+. Plus, and that would mean that the current interest rates that the Australian government pays um, to borrowers and people borrow from the Australian government through what the government issues in terms of bonds and so forth, that that interest rate will have to go up, that the Australian government will have to pay higher rates of interest on its um, credit borrowing. So that'll have an impact on the rest of the economy. And, of course, then other Australians, the, the flow-through might be that interest rates more generally go up in Australia. That'll have other flow-throughs mm. for the economy. And, John, um, despite that, despite that threat, the government and big business, and Jennifer Westacott from the Business Council last week came out with an article saying this, uh, still say the most urgent reform we need in Australia at the moment is to cut their taxes um, at the same time as this is threatened. So um, does that assume that uh, big business isn't going to pay? Oh, I think you can <laughs> you can fairly assume that. When, when uh, these, these are really this issue about... Debt and uh, deficit. So, deficit is what your current, what your revenue, the difference between your revenue and your expenditure every year, and the debt is the accumulated amount that's uh, accumulated as a consequence of various debts. And at the moment, I think our debt is about our deficit is about thirty-eight billion dollars, and our our debt in total is about four hundred and seventy-seven billion. That's federal government debt. But it's a class issue, really, mm. and that's, that comes out from what the Business Council of Australia says. Well, it's all about expenditure. That, all, that was also the line that uh, the Treasurer used to raise until a few months ago. It's all about expenditure. We're spending too much. Mm. Well, actually, we're not spending too much. I mean, in terms of comparisons between Australia's economy and the OECD, our level of spending on social social spending on welfare and so forth is, one of, is, is fairly low, is well below... Um, OECD averages, as is our tax collection percentage of GDP. It's very low compared to OECD averages. So the issue is really a class one. Who's mm. going to bear the burden of adjustment Absolutely. in relation to debt and deficit? And the answer is going to be, of course, the Business Council of Australia is going to say, we want a $50 billion tax cut, and the rest of you can pay for the increased deficit by either increased taxes on you, and that was what the GST discussion was about, or further cuts services such as transport, health, education, um, all of those things that ordinary working people depend on. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there also seems to be some sort of anomaly with the whole system because they say that the better your rating and AAA being at the top, 
you get better interest rates, it's easier to borrow, etc. But then the way you lose your AAA rating is to borrow <laughs> and go into debt. Isn't there a conflict here somewhere? Yes, absolutely. So, um, but it actually makes it makes sense when when the um, interest rates are low to actually borrow and fund, the, for example, infrastructure within Australia, which yep. the government pretends to be doing, but it's not. But of course, if you borrow more, then the argument is, oh well, if we spend it in productive areas, that will increase hmm. our GDP and that will improve revenue. Hmm. And uh, of course, the fault the fault with that is that even if you increase your GDP, if most of the increase in your GDP or the wealth that's being created in your society is going to capital rather than to labour, which is which has been the trend, I mean, an increasing trend over the last 30 years, if more and more of your increases in GDP are going to capital rather than labour, then wages are going to start to fall or stagnate. Mm. <clears throat> and, of course, that has implications for both your consumer demand and your revenue. So there's a whole range of contradictions within this bland terms about, oh, well, if you can borrow more, you can invest more. Well, yes, you can, but <clears throat> we've got to address the, the growing inequality, for example, by increased wages. But, of course, talking about increased wages just cuts into every small business and every large business mm. by saying, we as workers want more and you can have less in terms of profits. Mm. And that mm. raises that whole issue about what's happening with profits in the Australian economy. Yeah. How, how, how big an issue is infrastructure debt? That's often um, not taken into account. We have a huge infrastructure debt in this country, do, do we not? Well, it depends what you mean by infrastructure debt. So if you're talking about government debt, there's a whole range of reasons for government debt, including infrastructure and spending on social welfare and so forth. But the infrastructure, um, I'm not quite sure of the figures, but there were plans by the Abbott and then now the the Morrison government to spend more on um, infrastructure in the coming years, which would increase the deficit. But their argument is that these would be spent on things like roads to get coal mines access or trains to allow uh, transport to ports from various mines and so forth. So it's a, an adjunct to capital. And then the argument goes, oh, well, that'll improve the GDP. But of course, None of the analysis shows that there's a guarantee for this, especially given that the infrastructure focus is not on health and education but on mining. Sure. Some of it's on mining. That <clears throat> with mining prices generally collapsing, although some are starting to, to trend up again, mm. <laughs> the mines yeah. themselves are, are not productive or are losing productivity and profit. So it's a no-win game. Yeah. Well, of course, government always funded public infrastructure by by um, borrowing and debt over long generations at low at low interest rates, uh, but since since economic rationalism came in, and the idea of public private partnerships, etc., all those all those things where now the private sector is involved in all this, effectively the private sector, as you I think what you were saying, in fact, is determining what infrastructure we get. So infrastructure isn't determined on public need, but on the need of the companies who mm. want to fund it. That's exactly right. That uh, infrastructure, of course, is still important to capital in the sense that they still need an educated workforce, still need a healthy workforce, still need transport systems to enable workers to get to work in adequate time. 
but they just don't want to pay for it. They don't mm. want governments to pay for it. Well, well, you know, the, yeah, I mean, the latest... They want us to pay for it. Well, that's right. Yeah, the, the latest news is that, you know, Melbourne could literally come to a standstill with congestion, um, traffic congestion, um, because we have a huge urban sprawl. We're not putting the infrastructure into public transport. So if yeah. if people I, can't literally drive to work, um, or it takes two hours to get to work, as it does for some people from the outer suburbs, surely that's going to have an impact on the economy. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's part of the contradiction that capital is facing at the moment. Who's going to pay for that? Yes. And, and can it be paid for? And so you have all of these private, um, uh, public-private partnerships cropping up. We're really basically just the government giving various monopolies to big business, such as airports and tollways and so forth, to enable big business to profit out of our need to get to work or to fly around the country. And I think one of the issues here, when when we look at uh, what's going on, is, as, as Kevin just said, that really what the private par- public-private partnerships and also even government infrastructure itself are all about are the private aspect of this funding. Now, if you had a sensible approach and you put people first rather than profit, urban sprawl wouldn't be a problem because you'd have either... Um, cheap, affordable housing in close to where people work, or alternatively, you'd have public transport that enabled people to get to work fairly cheaply or for free. But, of course, that's not part of the vision of any um, neoliberal capitalist government. Its vision is to make profit out of us getting to work or to make Mm. profit for allow other people to make profits out of doing that. I had thought when we talk about infrastructure that we could go on to another topic, which was... So the infrastructure the government's coming up with, it's not all just infrastructure that's related to the mines and so forth. It's obviously also about um, health and education, but those expenditures have been falling over time for a long period of time, and you can see a shift there in terms of education, for example, from public education to private education, where a greater amount of your salary goes to to pay for teachers at private schools, even Mm. working-class private schools like uh, Catholic. I was going to raise that with you, John, on a broader level um, later in the program, but because um, you're involved with academia as well, uh, increasingly we're seeing uh, business saying that research must be geared to the needs of business and doing deals with uh, universities in all sorts of research areas, all of which. So again, it, there seems to be a business takeover of research at the tertiary level. Oh, absolutely. Um, and one of the criteria for getting employed or getting pub- getting uh, promoted in academia is um, your grants, how many grants you've received. So the big push is, well, where are you going to get grants from? Because government grants, as a, a generalisation, are falling in real terms. Um, where are you going to get grants from? Well, from private enterprise. Uh, take my example, the taxman. So who's going to employ me to research into addressing the tax inequalities that favour big business? Obviously not big business. And so uh, a lot of the non-business areas of universities, those more reflective areas, think about human society and the nature of the world we're living in, um, find it harder and harder to receive grants because Mm. their research and the direction of their research is actually contradictory to what big business wants, which is to make a profit. And so the generation of uh, increasing grants now has been into those areas where um, business can make a profit. So a lot of the medical areas, a lot of the 
engineering areas, the IT areas and so forth, but not the humanities and other areas. And I think it was significant that they put a non-scientist business person in charge of the CSIRO. <laughs> yes, who, in talking to friends who should know, has formed from his previous time in South Africa, where he did much the same thing as he's doing to CSIRO now. Um, and that means moving away from or what we might call pure research about climate change to research that will bring in money. Now, the climate change example is perfect, perfect one, isn't it? We don't want our scientists being paid for by coal interests to determine the impact of global warming or climate change. And, of course, coal mine, the coal miners and the other, other uh, um, dirty industries aren't going to pay for universities to do that. So... You have a bias in terms of what areas of research are going to occur. Mm. And so that, of course, not only the bias in research, but, of course, people in charge of those institutions then begin to undermine the very rationale for those institutions. Mm. Similarly with the ABC. Put somebody in charge to cut their funding, put somebody in charge um, to mirror the private enterprise Murdoch approach. Yes. The results of disaster. As a comment, I've always argued that during the Howard period when they really commercialised tertiary education, uh, the vice chancellors played a dreadful role in going along with that. Oh, yes, they were unanimous. They they, uh, didn't have a sense of how you could fight government funding cuts other than to get more funding from private enterprise. And so they jumped on board and said, yes, let's get more funds from private enterprise too. Grants and so forth, and uh, that'll that'll make up for the shortfall in government funding. Whereas I think the response of students and the unions at the time was, no, we need no, more government funding to continue to be um, one of the better um, credentialed university systems in the world that attracts foreigners, mm. and it also provides a, a an intellectual basis for uh, much of our workforce to be able to go in and question the way we're doing things now, not necessarily challenging capitalism, but thinking about better ways to run it. Of course, that's all being lost with, as I say, with this privatisation process or well, the well, yeah, commodification exactly. of exactly. higher education. We're losing that willingness to think critically, which is which is really troubling because it's critical thinking that's going to get us out of all the messes we're fast approaching. Well, I think if you look at what's going on in terms of... Uh, Climate change, <laughs> it's not just that we're losing critical thinking. Well, critical thinking is still there, but it's dying on the vine, but that, or not being paid attention to, but that the deniers are taking over the agenda, uh, running the yes. agenda for, for much of the society and flowing through to ordinary working people who mightn't be able, um, <clears throat> given their busy lives, to be able to grasp all of the subtleties around climate change other than the fact well, that's that it's right. happening. But those, um, those denialists have a platform due to a lack of critical thinking because people aren't challenging them. People, we're increasingly living in a world of sound bites and, and, and echo chambers, and this is what, this is what worries me. It's, it's that people aren't actually saying, well, what, are the, what is the agenda of the person giving me this information and let's analyse it from that perspective. That's just not happening. And I think there's a wider issue about this. It's a, but I've been thinking about it, and I think this is probably a little bit of hyperbole at the moment, but we're probably, we may be entering into the end of the age of the Enlightenment, the end of the age of reason, that what we're hitting now is um, a political and economic driver, which is to put profit first, 
And so that means ignoring all of the facts that contradict what is the immediate short-term profit-making venture that we can can do here. And climate change is the classic example of that. Um, The question of the existential threat that I believe climate change poses to the continuation of the human race over the next century or so is one that is being ignored by Mm. both many in the political groups, uh, many of the political leaders, and also uh, the um, drivers of business, business itself, Mm. who don't understand or don't care to understand that their immediate profit that they're making from the Adani coal mine is not really going to benefit humanity in the short term, let alone the long term, because of the increase in climate. Except when you're on this show, John, our regular listeners think the age of enlightenment is definitely long dead, by the way. Um, (laughs) uh, I was just about to say. (laughs) But uh, just to finish up, we won't finish up with this, but I'm going to mention something else. But just um, on on the ratings agency, just to finish with them, um, given they're so brilliant and can analyse the whole world, how is it they totally missed the GFC, (laughs) totally did not see it coming? Well, the GFC, what happens there? You get all these banks thinking, we've got all these shonky loans. We're going to package them all together and we'll securitise them and make them a trust or something like that and sell them off or sell the rights to the interest, to the income off, to uh, investors. And I will just ask the ratings agencies to give us a rating. And the ratings agencies, because they're paid for... They're paid by the banks to give them a rating, for example, in, in terms of their security. Say, oh, these are AAA rated. These are AAA rated, not a problem. And so people pile into them and buy them, uh, invest in them. And then, lo and behold, all of the loans that have been made to Americans who can't afford to repay when interest rates go up or couldn't afford to repay when they got the loans, they all collapse. And suddenly you have this massive collapse of... Uh, mortgage repayments and a massive collapse of this, these, these derivatives, these sorts of investments. Mm. And they, they turn out to be not AAA rated, which is what the agency's ratings were, or AA rated, which is still pretty good. They turned out to be junk. And mm. that means they're worthless. So mm. suddenly you have this financial crisis. Yeah, well, so they became... They Sorry. became experts once, once, once it had happened. They became experts again at why it had happened. They were good at that. <laughs> Well, that's the issue, isn't it? It's always after the event yes. that capital can tell you what the problem was. Yes. Yes. And indeed, when you look back at the history of credit ratings, that's a very common thing. <laughs> that that, that uh, um, they occur, they arise, and they become more important to capital in times uh, of crisis, or rather after the crisis, when people say, what we needed is a good credit agency system that could have told us not to do these investments. Yeah, except <laughs> the 95% of the market dominated by the three top credit agencies in the global financial crisis got it completely wrong. You shouldn't be paying any attention to these people. I just want to finish off, or we can finish off with something that um, talks about the power of these agencies. These three agencies, as I say, control 95% of of credit rating agencies around the globe, Um, Pitches, Moody's and uh, Standard & Poor's. And um, when you have Standard & Poor's saying about Australia, that really what we need to do um, is uh, we, they're telling us uh, the success or otherwise of the new government's ability to pass revenue and expenditures measures through both houses of, of, of parliament 
um, will um, will mean whether we maintain our AAA rating or not. Now, in other words, they're saying, really, you've got to cut expenditure to poor people and working class people. Mm. And yet this is an agency which completely failed in 2007, 2006, 2007 in terms of the global financial crisis. Yet its power, it is so powerful that if it decided to downgrade our AAA rating, then the interest rates that government pays on its uh, bonds would go up and that would have a flow-through um, consequences for the Australian economy, including further slowing down its growth. So um, clearly they have massive power and no accountability, and I think that's one of the issues about the sort of nature of the society in which we live. Where, where are they based? Are they based in the United States or where? Well, two of them are based in the United States, and one is a hybrid U.S., uh, the UK arrangement from memory. So um, all of them have accreditation from the SEC to be to give these ratings, and they kept that uh, accreditation even after the disaster of the 2007 global mm. financial crisis. Yeah. Can we yeah. Just, I'll just finish up because we've only got a minute left, but I think it's good to yeah. finish up with a, a stand-up comedian on the show, uh, Kelly O'Dwyer, <laughs> the financial <laughs> services minister, um, had the audience in fits last week when she told them that non-union-aligned superannuation funds should reach the same governance standards as banks and insurance companies, and the, <laughs> the audience fell about. <laughs> or, or when the, the, treasurer told, the Treasurer told the Parliament yesterday or the day before that budget deficits arise because... Yeah, you, you spend more than you, than you Oh, yes. He's, oh, really? He's on the ball, that bloke. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> nothing, the no, comedians have taken over. Nothing escapes SCOMA. <laughs> the, the clowns have taken over. Yes. Oh, dear. John, okay, look, we've got to go, but look, thanks for your time this All year. Right, thank and, you, um, and we, thanks for the interviews. I've that's appreciated it. Right. Well, we're off again. Next year. We're off Have till February, break. so after that we'll talk to you again. But thanks, John. Okay. Cheers, John. Thank, thank you. Thanks, thanks, you. Okay. Bye-bye. thanks, mate. Ah, John Passett, always good to have you on, John. Fantastic. Always, and, uh, always good to have John on, yep. yes. And, and uh, it, uh, the only thing is it means that you'll have to wait till February until I read my poem out, folks. Oh, that's right. We're going to keep eight everyone weeks, waiting. Because you're, you're away for the next seats. two weeks. Next week, of course, is housing with John, uh, not housing, transport, but John McPherson. And we're bringing housing forward a week to the week after because that's going to be our last program for the year. Yes. Um, the 15th, I think it is, or 16th, or 14th or something, whatever, around that time. Because the next week's right on Christmas, so we're going, only going two and, weeks in uh, December. And I think you'll so cope very well with that, Yes, me. and then we're off till February, and yeah. well, I can't wait, and Andy probably can't wait either. That's right. We, Emma probably won't be back till next year now. Exactly. Uh, no, Emma won't, <laughs> yeah, won't be back till But look, anyway, sing at your last show. Thank Andy for doing a wonderful job. and Thank you, Andy, so much uh, for doing a wonderful job. Um, also, thank you to Ruth, who sent in a lovely card for the week we did on our yeah, own the other I week. say thank you to yes. Ruth as well. Thank Thanks. you so much. <laughs> thank and thank you, you Kevin. Yeah. Thank you. Have Thank a you good much. one. Take care. Yeah.